Harper Academic Calling, Matthew Gabriel and David Perry. Hi, it's Kim from Harper Academic and I'll introduce this podcast with a confession. I am a lapsed medievalist. So in Matthew Gabriel and David Perry's The Bright Ages, a new history of medieval Europe was launched in house. I was over the moon that my former and current employment worlds were colliding in a new book. The Bright Ages challenges the myth that medieval times were the dark ages, centuries of ignorance, stasis, and savagery. But instead, the Bright Ages tells the story of 1,000 years of complex, nuanced, and fundamental history throughout parts of Europe, Asia, and Africa. The Bright Ages is an approachable, accessible telling of a period of history that wasn't really so out of step or so far away from issues we still face today. It will be a perfect text for your intro courses as well as your intermediate courses and contains a great further reading section for more advanced students to pursue their interests. For composition faculty, especially in graduate programs, The Bright Ages is a great example of specialist writing for a trade audience and is a very good example to introduce trained academics to public writing. As an academic marketer, I'm so proud to have an excellent example of public writing by academics on our list in the Bright Ages. As a medievalist, however lapsed, I'm thrilled that there is a wonderful opportunity for more readers to learn perhaps one or a few new things about an historical period that is so rich for discovery beyond what we see in something like Game of Thrones. The Bright Ages by Matt Gabriel and David Perry is available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook from Harper Books. We anticipate its paperback publication later this year, so if you are a faculty member and haven't yet subscribed to our newsletters, please sign up and you'll be the first to know. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Joining us today on the podcast, we have the co-authors of The Bright Ages, Matt Gabriel and David Perry. Guys, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. Let's start with what the book is about. The subtitle, I think, is, is pretty important and not to be overlooked. So let's just start with you telling us a bit about what The Bright Ages involves. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're really excited to do this. And it's, and, you know, it's funny you mentioned about, you know, something that's finally kind of in your wheelhouse as a medievalist, because David and I have felt kind of the same thing is that when we were thinking about what to write, um, you know, what kind of book we wanted to do, we're both medieval historians um, to begin with, but, you know, the Bright Age is a new history of medieval Europe, is that we were thinking that there hasn't been kind of a good, accessible um, both for popular audiences, but just for our for the undergrads that we we work with and we teach, um, history of medieval Europe for for quite some time. There have been um, you know there were some popular stuff that was written in the fifties and sixties, but and a lot of really great, wonderful specialized scholarship, even um, trade books that were published on very uh, much uh, narrower topics, the Crusades, um, medieval England, or something like that. But nothing that kind of pulled back and thought about what is medieval Europe really um really about and, and taking advantage of the most um, the most recent scholarship um you know the story that i tell which is an absolutely true story is that um you know it the the book itself kind of came about serendipitously meaning that david and i have known each other for a really long time you know we've been friends for for a decade or more at least um and we had talked about doing something together, but we had no idea what it was. And in 2019, I went to see, I was in England for a conference. I went to see an exhibition at the British, um, the British uh, Library on Anglo-Saxon Kingdoms, a phenomenal exhibition. And it was in the gift shop that it really hit me 
what what was missing. And what I mean by that is that, you know, there were some really wonderful books there on display in the gift shop, but there was nothing, the stuff they had about the medieval period, medieval Europe kind of generally was, was really old and outdated. And it still kind of, at least implicitly bought into a lot of it, this myth of the dark ages, you know, this kind of gloomy period, a period we, we couldn't really know a whole lot about. Um, and so, you know, there was nothing kind of that, that matched the, the glory and the, the splendor of the stuff that, that, that was on display in the, the exhibition we had just gone through. And so, so as I said, like, I, I was literally standing in the gift shop. I texted David. I said, like, we should write a book about medieval Europe. And David texted back immediately and said, yes, and we should call it The Bright Ages. That's, it is a true story, just to be clear. Like, this is not, this, it's, it's exactly what happened. And it was because there was this distance between how people, even academics who aren't medievalists, how people understand the European Middle Ages and what, not just me and Matt, but everyone in our field, what we see when we look at our sources, when we, when we travel to these sites, the world that we study, it's just not the same place. And so we're trying to, we're trying to correct for that. Yeah, and one of the things that I really appreciated about the book, and we'll talk a little bit in a few minutes about the accessibility of the text, because I think that's that's super, super important. But one of the things that I really liked about it, besides its accessibility, and, and it's part and parcel, I think it's not it's not either or, but are, is how you take pains in each chapter to show relevance for medieval problems and medieval issues to our current world. So what is the benefit of re-examining the dark ages that really weren't so dark? Uh, what is the benefit <laughs> of re-examining those dark ages to show continuity, really, with, with what we're currently living in and dealing with? You know, every period, and we, we try to be very clear, we're not saying the European Middle Ages are unique in this. Every period has its relevancy to the modern era, and every period is, is worth studying for its own sake. But there is a way in which, in particular, the European Middle Ages lives in the, the modern imagination, the modern American imagination, the modern Anglophone imagination, the, just the modern imagination more broadly. Um, and, and that, again, it, it is a false, it's a false narrative that works in a number of different ways. One of them is to say, oh, it was just this savage time in which everyone was barbarous. And then the Renaissance came and and civilization started back up again. Well, that's not true. So it's a problem that it's not true. But there are other more pernicious stories about European isolation or um, the, the innate savagery of certain kinds of religion or the innate conflict between religious groups um, about, about democracy, about learning, about universities, about all these things, um, you know, certainly about the Catholic Church, about all these things that are very much part of the modern world which have their origins one way or another in the Middle Ages or have important developmental moments in the Middle Ages. And we need to tell those stories. We need to make that story a lot more, um, a lot more accurate, but also build the continuities between one moment and the next and not allow there to be a Rome that, you know, where there was democracy or an Athens where there's democracy and then this thousand year break. And then, oh, then we get parliament, um, you know, as, as if that's how as if that's how history works, because it's not how history works. And, um, but if you're just sort of, if you're not a medievalist and you're not really paying attention to what medievalists are talking about, which is a reasonable thing for, for people who are busy with other topics, perhaps, um, you, you might miss it. You might miss these, these stories, um, unless we as medievalists do a lot more work 
to reach out across those disciplinary and, and period and, and genre boundaries. Yeah. The only thing, I'll, the thing I'll just add to that is that, you know, I think David and I, again, our, our experience in the classroom really colored how we were thinking about that question of kind of relevance as well as, you know, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing more terrifying than trying to explain why a group of 40, 18 to 20 year olds should care about what you have to say <laughs> for six months, basically, as, as they, they're sitting in a classroom. And so, you know, the, the structure of the book, you know, the, you know, I think we were thinking about like, well, what, wh how would you hook you know, an audience. And again, not not by, you know, kind of, uh, you know, bait and switching them or anything like that, but really just demonstrating the excitement about studying the period. And that's not to say, again, that, you know, we're trying to just kind of course correct away from the dark ages that everything was great. Things were not great during, you know, um, uh, the period of medieval Europe. But at the same time, by, sh by casting a light on them and showing kind of the questions, the, 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 the conundrums, right, the, the, the kind of mystery of this period and, and how historians can do the work to uncover those mysteries, I think is something that we got really excited about and, and, and our students get really excited about. And so we're really happy to, to bring that into, to put that into the book as much as possible. Yeah, and what was it like writing an accessible trade book, right? Because this is a different kind of writing project than you're used to writing for the Academy and the kind of book that, quite frankly, the expectation is there for you um, as, as part being part of the Academy. What was it like to write a trade book and to make your writing as accessible to as many people as possible. I mean, I, when I was reading it, I, I enjoyed, as a reader, I enjoyed the joy that was in it. I very much enjoyed the Golden Girls reference when I got to it. I was just absolutely <laughs> over the moon. And it's just, there are these gems in there that make it a joyful reading experience. For writers who are trained and for thinkers who are trained in a very particular way, what was this writing experience like for you guys? Yeah. Well, I will say I, I take full responsibility for all the dad jokes and the, the, the puns. I was allowed I was allowed at least one per chapter. Okay. So and then uh, David David kind of <laughs> cut me off. Um, so I take full responsibility, good and bad, for for all the, the terrible jokes there. My my poor family who has to endure them on a daily basis. They can they can tell you that's that's just me. Um, so, but as far as kind of writing that, that style, I mean, I think we were really fortunate in that a, like David and I had collaborated a little bit together on, um, some, some pieces like for the Washington post and places like that. So I think we were, we were used to that tone and, you know, that was something I had done a little bit, but really the secret weapon I think was, was David, um, you know, who has been, who has transitioned kind of in his career, you know, was a professor for a while and now is, um, you know, a, a journalist and as well as an academic advisor at the university of Minnesota, a senior academic advisor at the university of Minnesota. Um, but, you know, but he's, he's done that right. He knows how to speak to those kinds of audiences. And so, we were very, I don't want to say fortunate because that's not the right word, but but because primarily this was written, a lot of this was written during the pandemic, we had to get to a place where because we couldn't like see each other except kind of electronically, we had to be able to send each other, you know, the words that we had written and to trust each other that just to kind of make it better and to think about tone and voice and and stuff like that. And I think that really kind of helped us is a just just being okay with sending it out um, to the other person, but then also thinking about like, okay, like, how would we explain this both to our like to our undergraduates or, you know, to an audience like we would like we've done, we had done, sorry, um, you know, for the more popular pieces. You know, when I, um, I actually teach academics how to write 
for more public audiences. It's it's a thing. And I always say that the the voice to locate is not the voice that you do scholarship with, but the voice that you teach with. Um, that that the the voice that you carry into a classroom, particularly if it's a a classroom of sort of intro undergraduates, is is the voice to do this kind of writing with because it's still informed, it's still true, it still has a, a purpose, but you have to think about your audience very differently. And I, I absolutely think that's how we went to this book. It's how it's how we wrote. You know, I and I remember there is a kind of casualness to the writing process and that it can happen kind of at any time. There are definitely chapters I wrote in my pajamas. Um, and, and in fact, the first time when Matt and I wrote together for the Washington Post, um, it was about Western civilization and what that means. I absolutely was on the couch with my laptop in my pajamas in the evening. Something was on the TV that my that my wife and I were theoretically watching as we were trading drafts back and forth, you know, at least at least in the later part of the process. Mm -hmm. And it was easy. It was an easy collaboration. And then it was only, you know, a couple, maybe a month later that Matt sent me that fateful text from the from the from England. And I'm and I was I knew we could do it because we had just done it. Um, and I do think that that's, you know, that's an important the 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 relaxed nature of our collaboration is po made it possible to have a text that is still informed but is is open is open to people from all backgrounds and i've seen people you know it was, it was nice the book came out right for christmas so people did a lot of messaging about who they had given it to and i saw people give it to their 14 year old kids and their 90 year old parents and everyone in between and that's that's a pretty good range it's a pretty good range so um i feel like i feel like it must work yeah, absolutely. And and I like and I like that point too about thinking about the voice that you use for an intro class because I think that's something that everyone who teaches at or almost everyone who teaches I guess <laughs> at a let me it's like wait a minute, let me think about that. Almost everyone who teaches in higher education has had those classes. Maybe some not in a while, and everyone should be reminded of the legwork in those classes because those are very, very important classes to teach. Let's talk a bit about the bones of this book. Another reason why I particularly like this book, especially since it is about um, medieval Europe, is that there are there are women in this book. Uh, there are women <laughs> in almost every chapter. There, there is Hildegard uh, and Marie de France, which was great uh, to see. There are there are people who are not white uh, in this book as well, and for some people that will be. A challenge because that is not how we often heard and those were not the kind of stories and histories that we heard about this particular um, time in in human history so why was it important to talk about as much and as varied kinds of histories and kinds of stories um, as you do throughout the bright ages at the baseline it's this we know that roughly 50 percent of all people who live during the European Middle Ages were women. So that's just a fact and we should talk about them. Mm -hmm. um, we know that lots of people who lived in Europe during the Middle Ages were not white by any category that we would use today. We're not Christian, um, you know, we're not, if they were, we're almost never isolated. We're part of a, a broader connected world. Many people understood themselves as part of a broader connected world. People had ideas about gender and although this is not something we talk about so much in the class about sexuality, about identities, about all kinds of things in ways that were complicated, not 21st century, um, that 
they were they they but they were fully human and complicated and they thought about things um in ways that reflect that and they were they were different from each other as well as similar to each other to to whatever extent we could within trying to do a thousand years within 300 pages we wanted to make sure our book reflected that complexity why should medievalists read this book well, I mean, it's really good. I think what medievalists can Matt, get Matt has it. tenure. He's very calm. He's very calm. <laughs> but I think I think the thing that the medievalist uh, uh, people who 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 work on the Middle Ages can get out of it is maybe a couple of things. Is that one? I think it's it's a different way of telling the story of medieval Europe. Um, one of the core things, you know, is this uh, that we wanted to get across in the Bright Ages is this one term is is permeable, is that medieval Europe is not a closed off space. And it, oftentimes Europe is presented as hermetically sealed, um, you know, that it doesn't have any influences. It's just as and this goes back to your earlier question as kind of a white male patriarchal space in which nobody from anywhere else. Um, you know, kind of has any influence. People aren't moving back and forth at all. Um, you know, there aren't women kind of around and stuff like that. And so one of the things we're trying to do by including women, people who aren't white, by talking about places like um, the Eastern Steppe um, of, you know, uh, Western China, by talking about places like Baghdad, uh, like Cairo, uh, North Africa, Morocco, um, you know, even all the way up into, you know, Scotland, Iberia, etc., is that these places were all within the medieval intellectual world, that they thought about these things, they thought about these places, and they knew they existed and they were they were part of their mental map. Now, you know, I hope people like that story and are really interested in it. Our, our colleagues who are medievalists, and you know, we've been very happy with with what we've what we've heard from colleagues so far. Um, but at least it kind of challenges that that kind of bog standard, um, you know, uh, political uh, military history of medieval Europe, which starts again with this this conception of a fall of Rome and then kind of restarts with with the Renaissance. The other thing, too, and I think this is maybe this is even more important than than even a meta narrative is we tried very, very hard to highlight wherever we could all the phenomenal work that our colleagues are doing in these various um, chapters that we're talking about different topics. And we spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, even though it's a very limited, the, the further reading section at the end. So we can point to people, point people to kind of recent scholarship that rethinks, you know, the legacy of Gala Placidia or of uh, the, the, the phenomenal work that people like Monica Green are doing related to the Black Death. And just to show them that there is this wider world, like we don't, we, you know, and I, I'm guilty of this um, as much as anybody, is that when we write our lectures about the Black Death, for example, we just talk about the same thing. It's easy. You know, it's, I, I've given this lecture, you know, for 15 years now. I can just kind of continue to give it. But there's been a lot of work really interesting that's fundamentally changed how we think about the period. And so I think that that's one of the things that Bright Ages does is it brings stuff, you know, to the fore and it gives people, even our colleagues in the field, hopefully, you know, just kind of points that they can connect to learn a little bit more about these different periods. Why should faculty who aren't medievalists or who work <laughs> outside of the Middle Ages, why should they read the Bright Ages and how can the Bright Ages help them reconsider their own the time periods in which they work. You know, in some cases, the, the person who has already committed a big chunk of their life to studying history, not necessarily in a history department, but, you know, in literature or philosophy or whatever, 
but are not medievalists are just a dream audience for this book. In, in that, I mean, as, as Matt was saying, we hope our colleagues and our colleagues have been reading it and that it, it shows them different ways of telling the story. And I hope that's inspiring and generative. But for the, the person who hasn't really worked on the Middle Ages, maybe they took a class on it in graduate school or as an undergrad, if that, they've watched Game of Thrones. I really think, um, and if they're in the classroom, right, and they're trying to figure out how to um, bring the Middle Ages, the European Middle Ages in particular, into their classroom. Maybe it's just, you know, one Tuesday in October, or maybe it's, you know, in, in, a, in a class that goes from, you know, uh, Mesopotamia to the Reformation. You know, they might not have a lot of time on the Middle Ages, but maybe this book then provides them with a new way to think about it. I definitely think there are a lot of people who are who are academics who have not, who are still fully enmeshed in the the dark ages narratives and who who just really have never because because if you don't if you're not pushed and you might well not be to encounter different kinds of narratives to read the stories i mean i don't know what i don't know what 17th century france scholars are thinking about these days i haven't done the reading i'm sure they are telling different stories than when i was in grad school and now now i'm going to need to go do that reading um but until you know until someone tells you you don't you don't know and i really think that this book at its best provides both an engaging but also synthetic way to see what medievalists are understanding because we've learned things and we talk about things differently and we put put the pieces together in new ways and we provide a different kind of narrative that you can then you can then hang whatever you want on i mean it's a new it's a spine that you you know if you want to go in one direction or another or focus more on one part of a world or another i think that there's a lot a lot there to to work with is there anything that you left out of the bright ages <laughs> that you wished you could have put in or kept in? I think David should start yeah. with this one, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my answer I, is, is, I mean, there's lots of things. I mean, for example, I'm, I've spent, I spent the first at least 10, if not 15 years of my career thinking about the city of Venice and Venice hardly appears in this book. I could just write about Venice all day, but it just didn't quite fit. Um, there's also kind of related to Italy, this, this one figure, Matilda of Tuscany, who I just think is one of the most interesting people in the entire history of the Middle Ages. She really creates Tuscany as a, as a coherent, independent, powerful political identity within the framework of the Holy Roman Empire. And then out of her reign, we get the city of Florence, which then becomes the Florence of Dante and then the Florence of Petrarch. And, and without Matilda of Tuscany, do we even get a Renaissance if the Renaissance happened, which I think we could debate in a separate podcast. But you know, without Matilda of Tuscany, there is no Florence. Um, and so that's 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 pretty good. The great um, famous encounter between the Pope and the Emperor at the castle of Canossa, where the Emperor is barefoot in the snow and abases himself before the Pope. And it's a really big moment in medieval history. That's Matilda's house. And Matilda has invited them there and has choreographed the whole thing. And I got to tell you that when I taught the investiture controversy in grad school, I didn't know to say the name Matilda. I didn't even know who she was. That was, not, I mean, I don't, I don't know how I didn't know, but I did not know. Um, and I suspect there are other medievalists who don't know that you can't teach the investor controversy without Matilda of Tuscany. There's also, I mean, there are, she, she seems to have had a quite powerful sex drive and some of her like propaganda chronicles, chroniclers. So people who are on her side are not shy about that. So that's also, mm. I mean, it's kind of fun. Who doesn't like a good racy story, but also, you know, here's here's sort of women's sexuality being being celebrated in a kind of I mean, there's just a million. I mean, I could go on about Matilda Tuscany for quite some time. And I did. And Matt said, David, you have to cut this because it's not actually what the chapter is <laughs> about. And he was correct. 
and we cut it, but I feel it in my heart every time I talk about this. I was the not fun one. So. <laughs> just, always, just in that chapter, just in that chapter. Yeah, well. Yeah. There always, there always has to be one. Uh, there always That's has to right. be one not fun one. So yep. oh, I just have one more question for you guys. And it's a question that we ask all of the guests on our podcast. Who was your favorite teacher? Oh, um, I'll start with this one um, because it's the reason that I'm an academic, right? So, and uh, so as an undergraduate, um, I had really, when I started, I went to the University of Delaware, go Blue Hens, um, and as an undergraduate, and uh, I had really no idea what I wanted to do. I had a vague sense that I wanted to be Indiana Jones, um, you know, as most 18-year-olds do um maybe or well maybe probably not most but but i did um but anyway so i became an anthropologist i, I majored in anthropology i took some courses i decided nah this wasn't isn't really the thing for me i took some and so the spring semester of my freshman year i registered for the gen ed courses and i took a medieval history course because it fulfilled some requirement and honestly i was like ah i like knights i played with legos or something when i was a kid this sounds great as really good decision making i was i was demonstrating there um but anyway but but uh professor daniel f callahan was the uh the instructor there and he just transformed me he told a story i mean it was just it was straight lecture like really old school lecture like no discussion or questions or anything like that but he gave just such engaging lectures and um that that i was i was you know, I was hooked. And more importantly, I think um, in that course and then in succeeding courses, because after I took that course, I just wanted to take every course he taught. Um, he took the students seriously. So when they did have a question, it wasn't like, he, you know, he really he really thought about the answer. He talked to he talked to them like they were, you know, equals like peers and, and really kind of helped them along to understand, you know, what they were really asking and, and, and why that question was was a good one and, and why it kind of mattered. And so, you know, that's that's something that I've tried to model in my teaching. And it's all due to that is just to, to you know, that the process of knowledge creation is a, is a shared one. It's not me talking at you and you reciting information back to me. It's it's let's let's figure out why why you're asking that question. What is it? What can we be revealed and how do we actually kind of figure those things out? So. Um, so, yeah. So Dr. Callahan is is he still has a very, very strong place in my heart. One of the, yeah, I was a very, um, let's say a late bloomer. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dyslexic, which is not something I understood at an earlier age. And I actually had a lot of, a lot of struggles in, in school. Um, I did love my medieval history professor, Gary Shaw at Wesleyan, where I ended up going. One of the things about these relationships, as I think everyone knows, is that often it becomes one person, right? You get, there's certainly a medieval history there are not a lot of schools with multiple medieval historians. Um, and so it's, it's one person. And that I, I felt that pressure a lot as a professor to be that one person, to recognize when those opportunities were there, to be that one person or someone. But you know what, one of the moments where I thought maybe I could do this, I, I did a study abroad at Oxford and there was a woman there named Henrietta Lizer, um, a great, great historian. And I, um, but the model there is that you would go and you'd write a paper and then you'd sit in their office and you just sort of talk about it talk through it maybe you'd read it aloud you could kind of edit as you go but then you talk about it and that was really um 
Like I, I spent a semester at Oxford talking about late medieval English intellectual history, much of which took place at Oxford. You know, the people were there, the buildings were there, the sources were there. And that really, um, that was that was really exciting. I thought maybe maybe these are questions I want to keep asking and conversations I want to keep having. And I continue to want to keep having them. That's great. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And this was just an absolute joy. So thanks so much. Thank you so much Pleasure. for having us. Thanks for having us.